Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, it's great to have you back. It's week 11, if you can believe that. As we continue on, we will not be meeting next week, as you would assume. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving and take a break. Get a little change of pace in next week, and then we'll pick it up again, Lord willing, the week after that. But it's great to have you with us, have you here. I know a lot of people watch online. One of our most downloaded and streamed things that we do, actually, on Focal Point. So we know a lot of folks pick up on this later, but it's good to have you here. I wouldn't want to do it in front of a... uh, camera and a blank bank backdrop with no one to preach to, so I'm glad you're here to give me a little feedback. That's helpful. Well, let's pray as we do what I didn't think we would do. I thought we could tackle our topic last week in one week, but I think it's providential that we ran out of time, which I don't like to do, but as you know, but we had plenty of material left, so I figured it would be good for us to make this a two-parter. Don't ask what we're going to have to lop off at the end, because I don't want you feeling bad about that. But I do know that this topic is pressing, and it's good for us to spend another hour and a half on it if we can. Oh, that sounds so long when I say that out loud. Does it feel that long? Okay, that's good. Keep going right. Well, let's pray, see if we can uh, work our way through some answers on this thorny topic. God, tonight as we take a second look at this topic, I do pray that you'd help us to understand in context more of why this uh, makes sense as the best of all possible worlds, as odd as that sounds. We trust in you as a good and powerful sovereign God that oversees all things and that we uh, certainly have not only no right but no qualifications to to craft in our own mind something that would have been better than what you have constructed, even with the pain that we don't like and the suffering that is uh, seemingly so intolerable and uh, the evil that you say that you hate and that we learn to hate as we are sanctified. We know that you have a good plan. We want to affirm that tonight. We even want to think enough about this topic that we can give some good, cogent, and even straightforward, simplified answers as best we can simplify this topic to those who are asking for the hope that's in us. Why would you believe in God, they say? Why would you believe in a good God, the God of the Bible, and have just this world the way that it is? And even beyond that, the world that is discussed in the next life that includes your judgment. As we briefly touched on last time, at the end of our time together, we do recognize your power, your justice, the things included in your mercy that are demonstrated in the way that your word has laid out the reality of redemption, that you have said that sin becomes something that even in the end serves to magnify your grace and your goodness. So help us through this, God, even as we ended with that silly illustration last week about the world of sin and evil being much like a smelly world that skunks are complaining about and trying to figure out. We realize that we are the contributors to this problem in very personal ways. So we want to approach this with the due humility that we ought to have as fallen creatures. So give us more of your perspective as best as we can grasp it tonight that we might be able to give a good and reasonable answer for the hope that lies within us in Jesus name. Amen. I thought that it would be good for us to think about the way this is framed to us 
as Christians trying to defend, and what do we call that? Theodicy. To defend the justice of God, the rightness of God, the righteousness of God in creating the world that we have. But everyone wants to talk about possible worlds. Uh, Why didn't God do it differently? Even as I prayed, uh, their concern is that God should have made this world without suffering and evil. We shouldn't have the pain in the world that we have. So God should have done it differently. And again, there are proposed alternatives, but we do need to think those through more carefully than most people do. People will say in an evangelistic discussion, why didn't God just not give us an option to do evil? Uh, Why didn't we have a world in which you didn't have a choice? You had a world in which your only choices were righteousness. It seems that God set us up for failure by putting in the garden a tree that wasn't allowed. Why would God give us these options? Now, the very human answer to this, and I say that not as though it's a bad answer, but it is seeing things through a human dimension. We can look at the Trinitarian presentation of God in the Bible, that God is an eternal fellowship. And there's something about the dynamic of devotion between the persons of the Godhead that would allow us to recognize the value that there is in something that we would define in Scripture as love, that we would label as love. The kind of devotion and commitment that the Father has to the Son, that the Son has to the Spirit, that the Spirit has to the Father. These inner Trinitarian relationships that God then creates human beings that are not rocks and trees, they're not drops of water, they're thinking beings, sentient beings, and that's part of the problem is we feel pain, but that we are existing or existing in the capacity, with a capacity to choose to be devoted, choose to love, choose to be loyal. And that is a human way to look at it, but it's not a bad way to look at it because it is our human experience. The option is a characteristic, a foundational characteristic of humanity, a humanity that we enjoy. We don't want a pole doll that we pull the string on the back and it says, I'm devoted to you, or I care for you, or I love you. We expect there to be an option when a real human being loves us and we value and cherish that love is that there's lots of options the person could make, lots of friends that they could choose. So we recognize that no evil as an option would seem like there would be something less than humanity. We would have something less than what we have in terms of the value and the dignity and the worth and the, even the enjoyment, the intrinsic good of love and devotion and relationship. Because if there's not an opportunity for me to turn my back on you, if there's not an opportunity for me to choose otherwise, uh, then certainly we have something less than what we would hope to experience even in our fallen horizontal relationships with one another. So I'm not sure that that is a a great option. You could say, well, then there could be a coercion of some kind. And you can say that on various levels. That's a strong word, but I'll use that word because that's what it will come down to. No matter how you guide the ball that's about to roll off the table and you redirect it and you say, well, I'm going to make sure that you don't make that decision. I'm going to give you a decision, but I just want to allow you to choose the wrong thing here. A lot of overprotective parents function this way in their household. But the reality of people making choices and speaking in human terms to make free choices and decisions to be loyal and devoted and to love and to choose, these are the kinds of things that, again, would mitigate against the value of any relationship if there were a coercion to do what is right. There is an immediate judgment that would solve the problem of evil. If everyone who's about to commit a moral crime, and I say that from 
a divine perspective. If someone was going to do anything that was sinful, and once they had made that volitional decision to do so, just like we talk about repentance being something internal, and it expresses itself in actions or words or behaviors or values or priorities, the person who's sinning can make a decision at the moment to reach out their hand and take of the tree that they shouldn't eat, or they can decide to commit a crime, they could commit some immoral act, and to have God say, well, I'm not going to allow that in my perfect universe, then we would see God eliminating the reality and existence of evil in the world, but we wouldn't have anyone around, as I like to say, to contemplate the problem of evil in the world, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we would have a continual judgment of those who choose to do wrong. And by that judgment, I mean the extraction of those wrong behaviors, those wrong actions, those wrong words in the perfect world that God made. In other words, to start with the world that God did make, it was a world that was perfect. Why didn't God make a perfect world? Well, he did make a perfect world. That's the insistence of Genesis chapters one and two. But in that, he gave an option for evil. He did not coerce right decisions. And he did not immediately judge. That statement, as I often describe it, the day in which you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die in Genesis chapter three is a multidimensional penalty. When they are making a decision to reach out and take that fruit in that day, they did die. They died at least in terms of what death means, the separation between something and something else or someone and someone else. They hid themselves when God showed up and walked through the garden in the cool of the day, as it's put poetically in Genesis chapter three. And so we know there was immediate judgment in terms of alienation, but there's not immediate judgment in terms of extraction from the world that God made. They weren't cast into outer darkness away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. So we have an existence of the world that was at one time perfect, now existing with imperfect beings without immediate judgment. And that creates the problem of us standing around and asking, why is all this evil in the world? And again, we're still dealing with the moral evil. We dealt last week a little bit with not just the personal moral evil, but natural evil, which we described. But since we're kind of going back through this from a different perspective here, at least this particular point, uh, we're talking about the extraction of people in God's universe that he did not do. He did not punish them immediately. And I think that's part of what we're going to focus on in a minute. And that is God working something better out of the evil in the world than if he had judged it immediately. The other thing, which we often don't think about, number four, is that we could have God uh, just encase them in their sinful world. If you had God just letting rebels be rebels and the day they eat of the fruit of the tree, they'll surely die. And if the focus of that, which is most important, is a relational death and separation from their creator, they're out of fellowship with that creator. Well, you would have in that scenario a God who has no redemption of those people. They would be existing eternally in a fallen state, in an eternal body, in an eternal garden, in an eternal universe, which is how God initially designed his universe to be. That's how it was presented to us in Genesis 1 and 2. So we've got a God who instead decides to say, you're going to now return to the dust of the earth. Your existence in this state is going to go away. The world in which you live is going to be cursed itself, the fabric of the material of this world that you're made of. And you can't go into the garden and eat the tree of the of the tree of life because then you'll live forever. So God then guards the tree, the way to the tree of life and says, you can't eat of that. So he does not trap them in an eternal world. So we don't have rebels in an eternal world. And all these things set us up for something that I want to focus on for much of our time tonight. And that is what God did that was better through the temporary existence, coexistence with evil than had he 
either not given it as an option, coerce what is right, immediately judged it, or allowed rebels to live contained in some hermetically sealed world that he had created. So, I mean, we could go on, I suppose, with proposed alternatives, but those are the ones that I think are the most obvious to think through. And I want to make this point, for what it's worth, it's not a big point to elaborate on, but I want to make a statement, and I want it to be so significant in your memory that you write it down, and that is that the critics don't propose any thoughtful alternatives. When you deal with an on-Christian and he says, well, I don't like the world that God made, and then you need to ask them, well, what world should he have made? And even the philosophers and the critics of Christianity, the anti-theists of our day, the militant atheists, they don't come up with a lot of good alternatives for us. Say, great, you want to be God, let's have you be God for five minutes and tell me what kind of world you create that has even a reflection of the good that you see in the way that human beings are constructed and have a world that shows me what it's like to exist without the evil that you despise. And they don't have very many thoughtful alternatives. I've heard some of the most articulate leading spokespersons of anti-theism today, the atheists of our day, who basically punt on this question and say, well, you know, God is God, he can figure that out, but I just don't like this world. Well, if you don't have a good alternative to it, at least you need to say, maybe there is a good reason for the world being the way that it is. And I would just challenge someone in a discussion with them to come up with a world that doesn't have suffering and evil and still maintain some of the things that we see as important and intrinsic in human beings, like the ability to choose to love, to be devoted, to be in personal relationship with people, not as robots or automatic you know, automatons that are just going to respond to you the way that you program them to respond. Immediate judgment. Again, even that, like a bug light, if people are zapped whenever they have an evil thought, we would certainly have a different world. So what's your alternative? And maybe someone's going to come up with a thoughtful alternative, but when I hear some of the best, I say the best, at least the most popular anti-Christian spokespersons, they don't seem to have very many good responses. It was good for me to spend now two weeks kind of refreshing my mind and reading some of the latest stuff on this topic. I've yet to hear someone say, well, this is how God should have done it. All they want to say is, I don't want rapists in the world. I don't want congenital birth defects in the world. I don't want all that. Okay, tell me what kind of world then you create. And I tried to, I think, cover this. We may have done it quickly last week. But if you do have a world in which the dust of the earth itself is not cursed, you are loading human beings that are fallen in a rebel world with a perfect world to work with. The material world in which they live becomes much more powerful. It's like the imagery that's in the Tower of Babel. The point of him confusing the languages is that there's a cooperation that will allow them to do a kind of evil that would not be achievable were it not for the fact that they had the ability to do these things. Confusing the language, much like confusing the cells within your body or the weather patterns or the geology in which we walk around on the, you know, the, the, the crust of the earth, all of that reminds us of how God has not given a rebellious world an infinitely perfect tool with which to express their sinfulness. So anyway, I think that's worth writing down and remembering that critics rarely have a good or well-thought-out alternative to the world that they don't like. All right, let's talk about the present use of suffering. We got right to this point last week, and we were about to unpack this, but let me just positively illustrate this as best I can, because you live by the same kinds of rules that you don't like God living by or your critic doesn't like God living by when it comes to the fact that they don't want anyone to be exposed to the problem of pain and suffering. 
I mean, it is why we're aborting all the children who have Down syndrome or spina bifida or whatever when they get the prenatal screening and they say, well, I don't want them to suffer, so we'll just kill our babies instead. Well, I'm saying, what about the healthy baby? You got a healthy baby there, and I just want to illustrate this with pregnancies. Whenever someone intentionally brings a child into this world, they're making a decision that is really on par with and reflective of the thing that they don't like about God. I don't like that God would put us in a world where there's all this potential for evil and pain and suffering. Well, there's not a parent in the world that brings a child into the world, unless they're, they're, they're ignoramuses, that they don't realize that their children are going to be exposed to a lot of pain. Their children are going to be sick. Their children are going to vomit and going to get the flu. And they're probably going to break bones and end up in the ER. And, and not only that, they're going to suffer and die on a deathbed one day or maybe in some fiery accident on the freeway. They know that intellectually, but they still are willing to bring children into the world. And I just want to illustrate the fact that there is that calculated decision on the part of parents to say, I'm willing for my children to suffer. That's something I'm willing to do. Very few people, and I guess there's a movement afoot in our day where people are saying, you know, we're not going to have any children. And you've heard that recently, perhaps in the news. Well, I, and I can say this within the church culture and the subculture I run in, but I've rarely met anyone. Matter of fact, I can't, I can't think of anyone who hasn't reversed their idea about children when they've thought to themselves, I don't want to bring another child into this world. Now, the secularist may not have the same compulsion that a Christian has who's filled with God's spirit, but still, I think most of these people that are out there campaigning today on college campuses that they're refusing to have children, which may not be a bad idea for those people that are refusing to have children. But I'm just saying to you, most of those people will end up nursing children and bringing children home in their strollers and car seats. And they'll make the decision, even though there's global warming or whatever they're claiming they're so aghast about, the politics of the world or whatever it might be that they're all uptight about. Well, every parent's making a calculated decision. I'm willing to increase the pain of an individual because I think there's something good that outweighs the pain that they'll experience. I don't know. That's just a simple illustration that I think can help in the throes of a discussion about God, why God would create this world if he knew there would be suffering in it. That's the way they pose the question. And I'm saying, have you had kids? And there may be a college student saying that. So, well, I'm not going to. And I would just say most of them will end up doing it anyway. But are you castigating and condemning every person that's had a child knowing that they're going to bring a child into the world and they're going to suffer? And they're going to say, well, I hope there's a whole lot more happiness than pain. I hope there's a whole lot more pleasure than suffering. I hope there's a whole lot more good than bad that comes into their life. Okay, but you're still making a decision. And even if I took that same equation and I threw it on top of the God discussion, they still don't like that. Well, I want, I don't want God to create a world unless there's no suffering for people in the world. Well, you don't really believe that or you would live in that way. Then you have children. The example in the parenting patterns. People are parenting right now and continuing to inflict pain on their children intentionally because they recognize there's a role of pain in our children that is for their good. I mean, sometimes even within the context of sports, think about that. I mean, a parent really wanting a child to go and sweat and to huff and to puff and to get out there and maybe get knocked around on the gridiron as a freshman in high school thinking, well, this will be good for him. I mean, it's almost masochistic if you don't see it from a bigger perspective, but every parent intuitively does see it from a bigger perspective and they recognize there's a lot of things I make my kids do that hurt and it seems in some ways, within the context of an, a, a month or a day or a year or even a, a high school career, it seems superfluous. It seems excessive. It seems unnecessary. 
and yet they see a bigger picture of the good that is supposed to come from the bad that they are purposefully inflicting upon their children. And you can use the little simple illustrations of, you know, a shot in the arm of a child and and to say, well, I'm willing for my kid to go through that discomfort for the sake of something better. Well, that's the simple illustration, but there's a lot of other things that are much more subtle than that. There's a million things that happen in the lives of children that parents purposefully expect them to go through that are unpleasant, suffering and pain, but they do it willingly because they believe there's something good on the other side of it. Good intention by the recipient is obscured by ignorance. Good intention, the good intention, whatever the good intention might be in the allowance of suffering and evil, of the even directive of pain, to see it from God's perspective, the language of God, to the the decree of discomfort and something that's not a happy experience. That good intention can't be seen when there's a lack of perspective and a lack of knowledge. That's why children don't, don't get it. I heard someone just last week yelling and screaming when a nurse came in to get an IV going. It wasn't my daughter. I'll just be clear on that. It was someone else that we were sharing a room with. But that, you know, of, of course, the, the girl didn't recognize that was in that hospital bed. What an important thing this was that she get that IV. Her ignorance of what good this would produce, it ended up in her life bringing out all these objections and pounding her fist, uh, you know, really literally down on her hospital bed that she did not want this to happen because it was unpleasant to her. And there are are tons of things our children go through, and it's not just children. I want to extrapolate this into adulthood that people don't want to do because they don't see the, the whole picture. Even our teenagers that may not see the value of deferred satisfaction or saving money for the future or doing the work in school to get a degree, to get a job, to get a better paycheck. Whatever the perspective might be, ignorance is always going to obscure the good intention. And I'm speaking within the context of pain and suffering. So if you just see that as a paradigm within parenting, that's just my illustration here, then I'm saying that parental intention, the positive intention of a parent, you could recognize that there is a limitation built into humanity that may not understand the fullness of God's intention in suffering. Now, critics don't like that. But again, I go back to letter B. They don't, and number one, they don't propose a good alternative to that. They, uh, they can't maintain the aspects of humanity and extract evil and suffering and get left on the other side with something they like. And so I would say, if we have a world with pain and suffering that seems gratuitous to you, it seems over the top, it seems unnecessary, I'm just saying, could it be just like in so many other scenarios that we do experience and we know from those that are ignorant that there's some ignorance in humanity at large and there's something transcendent about God's knowledge, to use biblical terms from Romans 11.33, that there's something inscrutable about his judgments. Good intentions are always obscured by ignorance. I just want to be humble about this whole approach to suffering and evil, certainly because most people can't come up with a good alternative. Well, let's look at the good intentions stated. Just like the nurse had to say to this this gal, 12-year-old gal, there's a good reason for this. And even though it might not be understood at a cellular level or a molecular level or a viral level, pharmacological level, there's a good intention stated, just like there may be for us that we don't understand the intricacies or the inscrutable nature of God's judgment and wisdom. But at least God is coming to us in, in the pages of scripture and saying, there's a good intention for everything. Well, what is the most broad statement in all of scripture regarding this? Well, let's just speak to us, the good intention regarding his children, Romans eight twenty eight, and 
Paul is saying we defer to God in this knowledge and we can affirm the knowledge because God has given us this knowledge that for those who love God, all things work together for good. There's the good intention stated, so much so that Christians should have the faith and the confidence and the trust enough in God to say, I know he's good intended. He's got good intentions and he's well-intentioned, I should say, to do good for those who are called according to his purpose, which again reminds us that God has a purpose. And when he does things, he does things with a purpose. And we looked at the passage last week, or at least Rod wrote it down. We saw it on the screen, Ephesians chapter 1, that God works everything after the purpose or the counsel of his will. He consults himself and he says, this is the right thing. This is the good intention. We believe that God, as he reveals himself, is a good God. And in that good plan that God has, he says there is a good intention here. Just like a parent might say there's a good intention for whatever it is a kid might be objecting to because it's painful. So that's the stated intention. That's all I want to do is you could put a number of passages up there. You can turn to Romans 8.28 sometime and look up every cross-reference you can find. There's plenty of expressions of God's good intention in the world that he created. He didn't just create it good in Genesis 1 and 2 and say it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then say, well, it's messed up now and there's no good purpose. God is carrying out his good purpose throughout the pages of, of scripture and states it as a good intention. But what are some of them? And I just think as a cumulative case, let's look at some of the things that God specifically says, here's some good that I bring from the things that you don't like. The pain, the sentient beings that I've created don't like these things, but these things end up doing good in these ways. So here's seven. Let's start with number one. Number one is that it drives us to him, that there is a stated theme throughout scripture that pain, as C.S. Lewis liked to say, say, as he said it on the death of his wife, that pain is God's megaphone, right? He speaks clearly. And of course, what is he doing? He's calling people to himself. He says, you know, you need to seek me and I'll let myself be found by you, but you've got to turn to me. You've got to seek me. And the problem is we're a bunch of sheep. We're a lot of wayward sheep that want to go our own way. And he's the shepherd saying, I am, as Jeremiah 2 says, the, I'm the spring of living water. I can give you what you need. As Augustine said, as we quoted two weeks ago, our hearts are restless till we find rest in him. He's made us for himself. As the catechism rightly summarizes, God has made us to know him, to love him, to enjoy him. And so he has to call people to himself. And one of the things he uses to get that done is pain. It gets our attention. As 2 Chronicles 6 says in the building of the temple, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow, stretching out his hands toward this house, and then it goes on to say, God, please answer them. So think that through. Even the premise in Scripture of people calling out and making a plea to God and coming to the worship center is based on the fact that so much of that is motivated by the catalyst is people, as it says here, is their affliction and sorrow. We don't like to think of it that way, but think about all the reasons that people would ever even come to church today. So much of it is because they're in pain. And it's right that God would, as Lewis said, might whisper to us in our pleasures. And and that's true, but he's going to shout to us in our pain. And so there's something good about that. When people are given a sphere of reality and of function that does not, in our case, the visible reality in which we live, we don't have an invisible God present in our eyeballs or moving the inner bones of our ears. We don't have that kind of interaction with this God because he dwells in an approachable light. Well, how do we seek this invisible God? Well, one of the ways is through the affliction and sorrow of people's hearts turning to him. And that's a good thing. Matter of fact, when you're dealing with a non-Christian who's going through hard times, say, hey, 
one of the reasons God has allowed suffering and evil in the world is for you to see your need for the God who's ultimately going to set you up for eternity. So this is a good thing. And one day you'll look back on the affliction if it brings you to God and makes you cry out and plead in, in a prayerful plea to God. It will make you grateful. You will thank God for that pain. And I'll bet there's some people in this room I could give the microphone to and you could get up and tell your story. And pain was a very important part of God bringing you to see your need for God. Am I right about that? You can smile at me if that's true. And pain is a tool through which God brings you to him. If there were nothing else on the list, that would be a good one. The affliction and sorrow of people's hearts stretching out their hands toward God. In that case, in the physical manifestation of a worship center that Solomon had just built. God is going to, much like a parent out there trying to get his kid to go to football practice. If you don't think your kid's going to go and make a career out of football, why would you do that? I would think in any sport, whether you're sending him to the chess club or to play hockey, I assume part of your goal in the pain and rigor and discipline of something that's going to cause physical pain is to build their character. Well, that's certainly true of all kinds of pain. And in scripture, it says in James chapter one, verses two through four, that we ought to see our pain that way, our trials that way. The rigors of something that's in our lives that's uncomfortable, the rock in our shoe, the thorn in our side. You actually ought to see it because you're not ignorant. You have a big view of what God's doing with these things that are painful. You ought to count it joy. You ought to consider it a good thing. When you meet trials of various kinds, and you know this verse, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that's a great word, the strength of you hanging in there. Let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be teleos. You can be perfect. You can have a completeness in your character, right? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is building character, and one of the things that he allows to have happen in the lives of every creature he's created is pain. Think about that. Even the angelic class. You don't think it was painful to watch the rebellion that took place for the elect angels. I mean, there's got to be in that experience something that changes everything. And so it is for us in the experience of pain that makes us the kind of people that God is trying to create for himself. And if you think about all possible worlds, I just think theoretically, and this is all theoretical, but you think about all possible worlds, there's something about the human beings that God creates through a painful world that is made that ends up on the other side, probably creating people to be hard to imagine that have that experience without the pain that is inherent in the fallen world that we live in. It certainly strengthens the people that God has made. They're not complete until they go through the testing of fire. They're forged and there's a burning of the dross away if you will. Number three, certainly in a world filled with temptations and to think about temptations, it's the thing that keeps us from falling into those temptations, the sin that we're supposed to deny ourselves. Second Corinthians chapter 12 verse seven, Paul says the pain that he experienced as a Christian, of course, and we know this passage as well, very familiar. Second Corinthians 12, seven, to keep him from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited, which is an incredibly paradoxical thing to say. Satan fell to that very sin. The greatness of his, not in that case revelation, but his position of power and honor and majesty, his beauty, he fell into conceit. Paul says the pain along with the privilege keeps me from falling into the same temptation that he fell into. And now God is going to use Satan's messenger to accomplish in my life something that will keep me from falling into the sin that Satan fell into. That's just an ironic thing. That's a, an interesting thing that God would explain it in those terms, knowing that the very problem with Satan was his conceit. Now, Paul can say, I can avoid that sin because of the pain that I had that even Satan 
I mean, you could say it, humanly speaking, didn't have that didn't prevent him from falling into the sin that he did fall into. To keep us from sin. Discipline, the pain that's involved and whatever it might be that will keep us in that disciplined mindset is a pain that God said is used for good to keep us where we need to be away from the sins that can so easily entangle us, to quote Hebrews 12. Certainly as Christians, it assures us of our faith. Here we are living in a domain that God is not visible in. We don't have a God that we can see. So we have to, in this world, as it says, walk not by sight. We've got to walk by faith. We have to trust in a God that we cannot see, at least not directly see. So we have to put that confidence in a God that requires a faith that needs to be strong. And much like James, First Peter chapter 1 says there's a lot of the trials that come our way. Grieve, that's a bad thing. We don't like grief. We don't like things that cause us grief. But because of those trials, it brings a kind of grief into our life so that the end result, the complete and teleos result, as James 1 says, is now a tested faith. It becomes a faith that you know now, it's assured to you, is absolutely genuine, which should be to you more precious than gold, even though it's tested by fire. And there's the picture again of dross being burned away in a furnace or a cauldron of some kind. And in the end, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Christ shows up at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the assuring of our faith. If we had the world that we want, just like your children having the world that they want when they're little without the kinds of things that they don't like to do that you make them do, whether it's eating a good balanced diet or whether it's exercising or doing their homework, the reality is for us that many of the things that grieve us and bring us pain end up giving us the kind of strong connection to the God that we need connection to to experience the good that he has planned for us. The good intentions of God in part for the pain in this world is to get our strengthened faith to be the anchor of our our lives and our relationship with God. Number five, in this world there's lots of things that we need to do. There's ministry to be done just like there was ministry to the ground in Genesis 3. They were going to cultivate the ground and make something great out of the raw material of the earth. You're supposed to exercise dominion over the, the ground. You're supposed to direct it, channel it, mold it for good. People are in a very real sense, much like that. We have a community of people that the Bible says need to be prepared to do things, even in an eternal state. It says the servants of God will still serve him. That's a word that's used to the priests that do all kinds of things to make things glorious in the worship center in the Old Testament. That New Testament word that reflects that picture is the work of people working not just on God, but working with each other and working on each other. And the pain gets us ready to do that well. Just like an artist who's going to be a painter or a sculptor is going to have to work long hours and go through the grief and pain of all that it takes to be good at their job. So it is as we work on each other's lives, the pain prepares us to do that. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, classic passage in this regard, all these familiar passages. Paul talks about the comfort that we receive from God. The God who comforts us in all of our affliction did so so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves are comforted by God. God's done good things in our lives and allowed us to get through various trials and griefs in our lives. And he allows us now to be the instruments to get that done in the lives of other people. Second Corinthians chapter 1 is a great text about Paul's pain, but he speaks about how God parlays that into his usefulness in the lives of other people. And that's true. And I know all of this could be seen within the context of a fallen world. But even in a non-fallen world, if you were to think about the eternal state, there's something about the strength of those who are going to minister to other people and help create a glorious community, if you want to put it in those terms, that is helped by people that have been through the furnace and pain of preparation. It's the seminary of pain. Number six, directing history. God is directing people to do all kinds of things through the pain that they experience. He moves them through circumstances. And much like Lewis said, 
pain is a megaphone through which God gets our attention. Pain is also something that moves people, right? If you are sitting on a bench at an airport and the chair is broken, you're going to move to another chair. There's going to be pain that moves people around. And in Genesis chapter 50, it's an extreme example of pain, getting thrown out of your family into a pit because your brothers are jealous of you. Nevertheless, all of that worked out as it said in Genesis chapter 50, as Joseph said, as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And what, for what reason? Because there was something that was going to happen that needed to be taking place in a different land. And God was going to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And God put me here for that reason. So God moves the chess pieces around on the planet. And he does that through painful circumstances. So in the end, the wisdom, which is the opposite of ignorance, of Joseph being able to say, I know that the pain that was evil, and it was evil what you did, worked out to accomplish God's historical purposes. And they were good purposes, in this case, to keep people alive during a famine. Number seven, there's probably something deeper and more profound than is even recognized by saying it so simply, but I think there's something about appreciating its elimination. This touches a little bit on what we talked about last time when it comes to God's mercy and God's grace being celebrated throughout eternity, that there can't be the virtue of forgiveness without sin. There can't be the extolling of God's grace without the fall. And so it is that there's something about our appreciation for what's going to take place in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 that can't be fully appreciated without the sin that we are now experiencing and the suffering that we're now experiencing. I think of it often when I, I think about whatever it might be, if something, even locking the doors at night, you know, or turning on an alarm here at the office before we leave late at night. I just feel like all of those things, how different is the world going to be without crime, without people that want to do you harm or steal your stuff? Revelation 21, look at the way it's put here in verse 4. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's something about joy when you've known pain. No longer any death. I mean, there's no one that's going to appreciate that fully in the next life who hadn't stood by the casket or the gravesite of someone they loved on this earth. That is an amazing thing to relish and cherish as long as you've experienced the opposite. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. Right? How good is it going to be? We often say we don't appreciate our good health until we lose it. Well, think about the profundity of what you're saying there. The problem of sin in our world, we're going to experience the Bible promises, something that's going to be eternally great. The appreciation of that cannot be fully appreciated without the experience of it, at least to some extent. The former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Can't appreciate the new until I've experienced the old. There's something profound, I think, and philosophical about that. But think about the implications of that, how good it will be. Just like you begrudge the kid with the silver spoon in his mouth that's had everything given to him his whole life. You recognize there's a lack of appreciation for what has not been in some way deprived that person in their past. So there's many things in our experience I think that will be heightened in terms of the joy and the pleasure and the satisfaction and the relief that's going to come when all of us can look back at a world where we read the headlines or maybe experienced even the victimization of other people's sin. And God will bring us something that he says is going to be cherished all the more when he makes all things new. The present use of suffering. Those are just a few. I could have gone on, but those are seven things they think are worth noting. Number three, this is important to tell every non-Christian who says, why do you love a God who would allow such evil in this world? You'd say to them, one thing that needs to be repeated, number one, is that God did create a world without sin, Genesis 1 and 2, and Revelation 21 and 22, he's going to give us a world again without suffering and evil. 
the means of which, I don't think you can read a good book on theodicy that doesn't at some point touch on this, a good Christian book on theodicy. You can read the Hindu and Islamic theodicies, and they have them. They're not very satisfying. Ravi Zacharias always does a good job at trying to compare those coming from an Eastern culture, trying to look at the way they justify evil in the world. Christian theology has a much better answer for it all. But nevertheless, every good book on Christian theodicy is going to get around to the means by which suffering and evil is eliminated, which I think makes us appreciate the God who would, number one, become a part of the sinful fabric of creation, the incarnation. I mean, Romans chapter 8, verse 3 is a verse you may not think of as your first go-to verse on the incarnation, but in terms of what we're trying to talk about, look how important this phrase is here. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Here's the phrase, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. I mean, in the form, in the likeness, in the manner of sinful flesh. Well, we know this, God can't die. The perfect Adam with access to the tree of life cannot die. Jesus Christ dies, the perfect dies, and how does the perfect die? Well, the perfect dies because he takes on humanity, humanity that is fallen, and Jesus takes on human, fallen human existence. Not a sinner because he's not a morally culpable sinner. We recognize that, tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. But he comes experiencing all the things that are part of sin. One thing's not going to happen in the sinful world is you're not going to be sitting by a well tired and wearied from a journey. What do we know about God? He's not weary, Isaiah 40. He never gets tired. He never grows weary. Young men can can grow weary and stumble and fall. God never does. Here's God, the God-man who takes on human form. He becomes a part of the weakened creation and sits at a well in John 4, tired and exhausted. He ends up getting spikes driven through his body parts. That's a God who's now a part of of the fallen fabric of creation. He's made of the same stuff that Genesis 3 says is now cursed dust. That's an important realization that God stoops to become a part of his creation, which we don't have in many other attempts in religious systems to justify the reality of sin. Our theology makes very clear God becomes a part of this sinful world, the incarnation. And he identifies with humanity. This is probably the go-to passage you thought of. And I want to think about the word kenosis. He empties himself. There's something so humiliating about that word in his humbled state. He empties himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. So he becomes completely identified with the fallen creatures that he is. And you can illustrate that as I'm sure it was if you grew up in church from the time you were in elementary school. People would talk about, you know, look at the ants, look at the bugs, look at the moths, the flies. Could you imagine becoming one of those to save the flies? I mean, whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a juvenile illustration, but not a bad way to think about something of the taste of what it would be like to lay aside all your divine prerogatives and privileges as deity to do something for something that you inherently despise. I mean, if you make it the cockroach colony. So here is God looking at all that is wrong with the world and becoming a part of that world. That's a unique part of the compassion of God reaching out to do something to put an end to sin. And that's the whole purpose of all of this. So there's the incarnation and then the full extent of human identification. He has to be made like those he's going to redeem. As a part of the perfect plan of God's redemptive purpose, he identifies fully with a servant, a doulos, a, a slave, and certainly a slave to the laws of physics and the laws of biology and all the things that he went through that you may not think of, like teething as a child and you know slobber coming out of his mouth and crying because he's in pain going through all the things that we go through, twisting his ankle as a child, getting a scab on his knee, all the things that we have to experience in the full identification with the fragile human race. 
How else does he end suffering? Well, he's got to go through suffering himself to literally suffer. And there's a million verses you could look up in this regard, but I'll just put it simply as it does in 1 Peter 4, 1. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, you'd get ready to suffer too. And there's lots of reasons he suffered. And in Peter, he's trying to make the case you should suffer for the right and good and godly reasons in an ungodly world. But he suffered. Christ felt pain. God incarnate. We have to be careful. There's a doctrine called the impassibility of God. Do you know that word, impassibility? In Christ's humanity, as the Son of God, he experiences the kind of suffering that we can't even ascribe to the Father. There's a word for that extension of our feelings in humanity, our suffering from a human perspective to the Father, which is not accurate. But there was suffering in the Son. There was human suffering that was full, the full weight of the suffering of humanity. And Jesus experienced it. I mean, that's an amazing part of our Christian theology, that God became a man, that the eternal and glorified Son suffers in the flesh. And we're going to suffer too. So the pain that we have, God has had. Think about that. The God-man Jesus Christ has had. And so for all the extrapolation and theoretical attacks on Christianity by people saying, well, look at God out there. He creates a world and everyone's suffering in it. Well, God comes and becomes a part of that. Becomes a part of a frail human being with bones that have to grow and headaches and, and, and get dust in his eyes. And then not only that, he becomes the victim of suffering. The kind of suffering that everyone's saying, well, God shouldn't create a world like that. Well, the God who created the world became a victim of that pain. That, that's not a God that's sitting passive with his arms crossed. We're not deists. We believe in a God that's not only active in his creation, but became a target of the suffering and pain and evil in the world. And of course, it gets worse. He was tortured in the most heinous way, in a way that you wouldn't even do within the city walls of Jerusalem. He had to be taken outside the gates. So God tries to put an end to sin and successfully does put an end to sin and sanctifies his people, sets his people apart through the spilling of his blood on a cross, which is the shorthand for talking about what everyone knows happened to him. He got hung on a rack that was designed to torture someone. If you want to talk about God and, and, and why would he do this, he did it full well, creating a world that he himself would become the victim of all of that suffering in the most heinous way, dying in the most cruel way. I mean, I don't want to sentimentalize our apologetics when it comes to evil, but I mean, there's something emotionally moving about the fact that God would become one of us, that the Son of God would take on human form and then be kicked and beaten and die bleeding on a cross, naked on a cross. As I have to try to remind you how humiliating that is, this weekend we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we do that in our church periodically in our church schedule to remind us of the essence of what it was to have Christ die in our place. We're going to talk about your health this weekend and the health of your loved ones, and to think about the health of Christ on a cross who died in our place. Died not because he was dying of cancer and couldn't get his blood count, his white blood count cell up. He died as a victim of the worst kind of crime imaginable, the injustice of the cross. The Son of God, who now is glorified and was glorified in eternity past. Then, of course, death, which God can't do. God can't die. But here's the eternal Son of God in his humanity actually being victim of the penalty of the thing that we're all complaining about. We cry at the gravesite of our loved ones, and we recognize that Christ experienced that in his humanity. He died. Of course, the rest of Philippians 2, I quoted verse 7, verse 8 says, in being found in the form, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humiliating 
end and cessation of his life in a biological body, having his spirit depart, something that if Christ does not come back first, all of us will experience the pain of your last breath and Christ experienced it and experienced what it is to go through death, which wasn't clinical. He prayed in a garden for the cup to pass, which was more than human death, I understand, but death no less. The end of sin included God stepping into his creation and experiencing all that. It's not a bad thing to remind your non-Christian friend of who wants to take pot shots at God for creating a world where he has to have arthritis or migraine headaches or had his wife die. Okay, yeah, you're right. God created a world in which all of that is, is real. But the God that you're mad at experienced that in the same human container that you've experienced your pain in. And all of that was to put an end to this. And here's the promise he makes in 2 Peter 3.12 that we all can wait for and we can all try to hurry up, hasten the coming of the day of, of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, when all this sinful world is gone, when he wipes away every tear, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the whole point of the Bible. And you can get really stuck on the fact that there's evil and sin in the world, but all I want to remind my non-Christian critic of is that the whole point was God taking on the penalty of the problem that created the pain. He experienced the pain. And then he's saying, I did all of that to end all of this so that you can have a place where we don't have any of that. That's the point. We're solving the problem. I say we, of course, God solved it all. But we celebrate it. We proclaim it. We're supposed to be advancing a Christ who solved the problem. The hopeful promise. We see it everywhere. And when we're struggling through our own pain, this is a good verse for us to remember. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. You have need of endurance, of hupomene, of hanging in there under the pressure and pain of suffering, of the graveside, of the illnesses, of the pain in your body, of the emotional pain, of the injustice, of the envy and the strife and the factionalism and the dissension and all the stuff that you hate about this fallen world and the crime and all the rest and people that are angry and hostile and all the stuff you don't like about the sinful world. You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And God has promised that this is going to be over. That's the courage that we need to keep walking through all of this, confident that God has set forth and purpose to end it. You've been, I hope, under my preaching, most of you long enough to know, does this not come up in every other sermon? This is about the next life. It's not about this life. I'm not Joel Olstein. Have you noticed that? You've noticed that, right? This is not about your best life now. And it's been said ad nauseum. But if this is your best life now, you're going to hell. For us, this is our worst life now. This is our worst life now. It doesn't get anywhere. This is as close to hell as you will get if you're a child of God. And if you don't have that perspective, as Hebrews 11 says, then you're not even worthy to be called a child of God. The point is God is proud to be called their God because we're looking for another world. And and, and that's the point in comfortable Orange County, California. We need to recognize that. And the preaching of the cross and the preaching of the gospel and the hope of the Christian life is supposed to get me to set my eyes beyond the horizon. And age will help you do that because you realize it's not getting better. Everything's getting worse. Who did I quote the other week? It wasn't Ryle. It was, oh, it was Jonathan Edwards, was it not? Said all of your hopes, everything about everything that you want is going to go away. You're going to die. That's just so important for us to realize, not so we can become dour Christians, but so that we can put our joy in the right place. You should be hopeful. You should be joyful. You should be positive. You should be peaceful. 
because you know where we're going. So you have need of hanging in there. And again, the word endurance there, it presupposes pain. It presupposes evil. It presupposes suffering. So if you got that, then you're able to qualify to do this verse. Because we can't wait to receive what God has promised us. Second Peter 3, a world in which righteousness dwells. That's the point. That's the whole point of everything, of CBI, of remodeling this campus, of reaching people for Christ, of sending partner's manuals to Rwanda. All of it is about that. It's about the next life. It's about the hopeful promise of redemption and what the result is, the reality. The theodicy of the Old Testament is bound up in the book of Job. At least it's concentrated in the book of Job. And the book of Job is a great study in this. Gleason Archer, I think, wrote a good commentary. I mean, there's lots of good commentaries. Kaiser, I think, may have even written one that was focused on theodicy in the book of Job. Well, you can't write a commentary in the book of Job without talking about theodicy and dealing with theodicy. The idea of looking at Job as a template of all of this is helpful. And I don't just mean as a lesson. I believe in the historicity of Job, obviously. But just to stand back and look at the plot line and to see how this all works out. I mean, to take all of these chapters, 42 chapters, and to just shrink it into the basic plot and say, there's the template for me to present to my non-Christian who's asking for the hope that's within me. Number one, it's the realization and the affirmation of genuine suffering. Suffering in this world will happen. Suffering that you think is gratuitous. Suffering that you think you don't deserve, that everyone else doesn't deserve. Stuff that you do not like, viscerally will hate That's the reality of Job. And Job presents it to us in the most extreme way with a guy who's got his wife telling him to curse God and die, scraping pus off of his skin with broken pottery, having all of his children die, his seven sons and three daughters. All of that pain and suffering, that's given to us in vivid color in the book of Job. And you have the advantage of seeing the narrator tell us what's going on, but the experience for Job is this is inscrutable. We don't know why it's happening. And he's got his three friends that come along and eventually four that keep giving him explanations, but it's inscrutable. He didn't know what the purpose is. We know what the purpose is because we get to read this whole backroom, boardroom discussion that God has with the enemy, all trying to vie for the glory of Job. I mean, where Job, where, where's Job going to put his confidence? Is he going to honor God if all this stuff is taken away? So we have real suffering, inscrutable purposes. That's another way to spell ignorance. Job was ignorant. And in your ignorance, you can start to say a lot of ignorant things, which he starts to do in Job chapter four and following. It gets real bad. So his inscrutable purposes, not understanding why all this pain is happening. And then the whole point of the book is restoration. It's the point from a human perspective, the theological perspective we highlighted last time we were together, and that is that God says, I'm God. And we looked at the issues of the potter and the pot, and we recognize the reality of God who says, I can do what I want, but God is not unjust. The point, though, in the restoration is we see God doing in the end to Job in a story, and it's true, I believe, in the historicity of Job, but the story ends up showing, listen, you suffer, you don't understand the suffering, There's inscrutable stuff going on behind the scenes that you may not know. And then in the end, don't worry. It's going to be okay. Job chapter 42, just to highlight the restoration, verse 10. And Yahweh, the Lord, restored the fortunes of Job. That's when he prayed for the friends. That's what the ellipsis is about. And Yahweh gave Job twice as much as he had before. I just want to show you that. Think about that. Everything was taken away, and then he gets twice as much back. Verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. So you had everything going, what you thought was good and comfy, and then all of it was taken away, and you suffered this gratuitous 
violence and evil in your life. You didn't understand it. You got mad. You shook your fist at God. God showed up and said, Job, were you there when I created the world? Do you even understand anything about the mountain goats or the Leviathan? Oh, you don't understand that. So listen, Job, shut up. I mean, that's really what God says. And he covers his mouth and he says, I repent, you're God. I'd heard you with my ears. I see you with my eyes now, which of course was all metaphorical for the idea of I, well, who am I to say anything? I retract and repent. You've got your higher inscrutable purposes. I don't need to know them. You're God. You're right. I got no demands on you. I should have stuck with my initial response, which was the Lord gave, the Lord took away. But God isn't into taking away. He's into wanting to bless his people. And in the end, he does. And the restoration takes place. I want to point out something in this restoration. Job chapter 1 and Job 42. Compare these two passages. He possessed 7,000 sheep, chapter 1. So what's he going to possess in Job 42? 14,000 sheep. And that's exactly what's described here. Twice as much land, twice as much property, twice as much grazing. I mean, you need a lot. To, now you got twice. That's a lot of sheep to start with. Now you got twice as many. You had 3,000 camels. Have you seen, have you gone to the Middle East and seen camels? I mean, they're a lot of work. 3,000. I don't want 3,000 more. He's got 3,000 more. He's got a whole, you know, Hertz rent-a-camel company. He's got more camels than he knows what to do with, from 3,000 to 6,000. He had 500 yoke of oxen, right? That's, that's, that's yoked together. That's the 1,000 oxen. That's like tractors in the ancient world. Got a lot of tractors. How many does he get? He gets 1,000 yoke of oxen. 500 female donkeys. How many? 1,000 female donkeys. I mean, that's simple math. 7,000, 14,000, 3,000, 6,000, 500, 1,000, 500 female donkeys. 1,000 female donkeys. Have you ever noticed this? There were born to him in chapter 1, seven sons and three daughters. Job 42, 13. In the restoration passage, it says, he had also seven sons and three daughters. And it goes on to explain how great they were and intelligent they were and how his daughters were so beautiful, more beautiful than all the others. Great. Where's your other children? This is interesting because it's the earliest book, at least historically, a lot of reasons for it, the monetary indications of the words, that he's a patriarch for the family, doing sacrifices before the Levitical priesthood. He lives to be an old age that's older than anyone, you know, I mean, you're on the downslope of the of the degeneration of human life. So, I mean, he's living way too long to be even in David's era or even in, in Joseph's era. So this is an early patriarchal, probably written, don't know when it was actually written, but depicting someone from the Genesis time frame. When Jesus rises from the dead, and even when he speaks to the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, he keeps pointing to the fact that you don't understand the scriptures. You don't read the scriptures. Even the concept of the resurrection, he keeps pounding that you guys don't get it, even though it's not, there's not a lot of explicit passages. I mean, until you get to the post-exilic period in Daniel chapter 12, and certainly in Jeremiah, you've got passages about the bodily resurrection. But here's the earliest book of an early story. I mean, the whole implication here, can you see where I'm going with this? The whole point, even those statements in Job about, I'm going to see my Redeemer. There's something about an afterlife that's embedded in this passage. And Job, though I think our relationships will be different in the afterlife, he ends up with twice as many people. You're not going to have a relationship with your sheep or your camels or your, or your oxen in the next life. But you're going to have your relationship with your children in the next life. In a different relationship, I'm assuming that the relationships are different. He gets 14 sons and 6 daughters. But he experiences a set here at the end of his life that reminds him that he's got 10 more kids on the other side. That's just an interesting reminder of a little bit of the reflection of what I was trying to underscore, that everything in reality for human beings is about the next life. It's not about this one. Everything about Job's life, even in the embedded inference of him having double of everything and then not having double kids, well, he does have double kids. That's the point. 
10 children in the end of his life, 10 children at the beginning of his life, those are not disposable like sheep or oxen or camels. Those have immortal existence beyond the grave. Maybe you've noticed that in your reading of Job before, but I think it's a reminder of the focus on eternity. And it leads me to the next thing. The exciting thing about the end of suffering and evil in the world is the fact that there's no suffering or evil in our bodies. We've looked at passages already on that, but let me just quote Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his current, at this point, post-glorification, his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself and he will subject our new bodies to his template, to his pattern and you won't have all the ailments, the pain, the suffering, the disease, anything that can deprecate or in any way contaminate or degenerate your body, all of that is gone. Glorified bodies. That's the point. A glorified universe. A perfected universe. A universe without sin. A universe without destruction. A universe without what's called here futility. Romans chapter 8 verses 20 and 21. The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And God did. He made the frame of the universe fit the, the picture of the heart of the human person. The, re, the rebel. He made a rebel universe for the rebel people to live in. And he subjected that as though it's personified here as a person. In hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption, parallel word here to futility, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The hope I'm holding out to my neighbor is not what the average church today, it seems, that keeps appealing to the temporal life about better, clearer skin or whatever they're trying to promise you from the pulpits of modern churches. It's about the fact that we're heading toward a place where righteousness dwells, and that's a place where your body is glorified and your universe that you're living in is glorified. And the great news is it's permanent. The forever statements of Revelation, Revelation 22, 3 through 5, there will no longer be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. That's the word that I keep talking about that's used of the in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that describes the work of the priests and the Levites in the worship center. They will serve him as other translations translate it, not the normal word for worship. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need, there will be no need for a lamp, a light of a lamp or the sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. All the forever statements of the book of Revelation, that is what we're shooting for, a permanent place. I was rereading my chapter that I wrote on, I'm not going to send my way out of heaven. And I think, again, that is something that should bring us great assurance. The idea of eternity is a permanent reality. That's what I'm, that's the that's the offer if you will if I want to even put it in those terms that I'm holding out to my non-Christian friends navigating it. Just like in Job, the message of Job is this is going to happen and I want to affirm it. I want to affirm the fallen realities. I want to be a realist to my non-Christian. I don't want to pretend, hey, become a Christian everything will be great. Hey, become a Christian now, you were diagnosed with cancer, maybe God will take the cancer away. Well, maybe he will. I don't know. We'll talk about it on the weekend about Asa and his foot disease, gout or whatever he had. I'm not saying that God may not in his grace do that because he's got a purpose for you. Like in Hezekiah's life and there's other examples of that. But when it comes to sin and evil and bad things, yeah, your car might get ripped off, your daughter might get raped, your husband might be killed in a car accident, all that. There's no guarantees that's not going to happen to you as a Christian. I'm going to affirm all the fallen realities. When Job's friends didn't do that, I mean, they had a lot of excuses and reasons why they thought Job was suffering. His response was, I've heard many things, miserable comforters are you all. And I don't want to be that as I deal with non-Christians or Christians when it comes to 
reality. When I sit at a hospital bed or I deal with, like I did yesterday in a nursing home with people failing bodies, I want to affirm the realities of these things without being Donnie Downer. I, I want to make it clear. I, I'm not here to hold out that my Christianity in this present life is in some way going to give you a guarantee that all this is going away. I affirm the realities of the fallen world and the evil in which we all experience and the suffering that we have to put up with. Well, that's not very hopeful. Well, here's the good thing. The reason I'm there with people at their bedside or at their nursing home is because I'm there to team up. I'm there to be a part of the body of Christ. And while we're suffering in this fallen world, and even as my non-Christian neighbors are suffering in the fallen world, what I want to present to them is the gospel that we've underscored in the third point of this lecture. But now I want to say, how do I deal with this? Well, I affirm the reality of it, and I'm not promising you that it's not going to happen in this life. This life is filled with that. God is keeping his promise of Genesis 3. But I'm here to be with you. I'm here to walk you through this. I'm here to be teamed up with you, to huddle up and to walk through these things. It hurts. Sin hurts. Evil is painful. 2 Corinthians 7, 6 and 7. God who comforts the downcast. I've been quoting this passage a lot. It's come up in my ministry lately. The downcast, when it's heavy, when it's hard, when the weight of sin and the evil and the suffering encroaches on your life. God comforted us, not by sitting on a rock and watching the sunset and praying through my prayer list, although that might happen. But in this case, he comforted us with the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoice still more. I got the message from him that you were even hurting for me. And all of that team, that emotional connection that we're going to walk through this pain together. There's application here for your non-Christian evangelism and there's application here for your Christian ministry. You're there. That's what Job's friends needed to do. And that's what we need to do. It doesn't mean we don't talk. It doesn't mean we don't speak the truth. But it does mean that the most important thing about suffering and walking people through their suffering is being there with them. Super important. And I say this because we're talking about apologetics. In your evangelism, when your neighbor's spouse is found dead in their bed or whatever, or when there's some tragedy and the paramedics in front of their house and you're sharing with them, go and be with them. Spend time with them. Spend hours with them. Be with them. Let them cry on your shoulder. Be the person that recognizes that there's comfort in other people. Team up. And as Christians, of course, it's all the more helpful. Matter of fact, I can bring in things like this for Christians. We need to pray. James 5, 13, speaking to Christians, says, if anyone among you suffering, here's the prescription. Let me write your prescription. Dr. Fabara says, pray. There's your answer. If anyone is suffering, pray. In this fallen world, when you have this, pray. And I, you know what? Even for non-Christians, it's not a bad thing. I want to say to them, hey, I want to be with you. I want to pray with you. I want you to pray. We could get into a whole excursus about God hearing the prayers of non-Christians. And I'm just going to tell you this. I'm going to ask any Christian to pray. And I'm going to ask any non-Christian to pray. Of course, I want to get around to the prayer of repentance and faith. And I want to get there fast. But if there's something bad happening and terrible happening, my non-Christian that I'm called in to deal with. We had a call this morning of a suicide. And, and just to deal with the family. We just, we want to pray. Even if they're non-Christians, which, you know, I won't say anymore. But the idea of being there and praying I mean, that's, that's the prescription of Scripture. If anyone among suffering, pray. By the way, Jesus, just to expand on this point, or at least underscore it, to strengthen it, Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That may be a head-scratcher for you thinking about the deity of Christ, but in his humanity, I want you to think of this passage and recognize this is not that he had to be corrected and disciplined in his sin, because, of course, this same book says clearly he did not sin. 
But what you need to see is that God, the incarnate God, the God-man Jesus Christ, prayed and he did so with tears and crying. And he was responded to by the Father, even though he wasn't having the cup removed from him in the garden. He learned to stay on track in part through the pouring out of his heart, even the emotional grief in a sinful, fallen, evil world through the medium of prayer. Prayer is the prescription in the midst of evil and suffering in the world. And thankfully, to combine point C and point B, we should be doing that together. When Peter was in prison, unjustly suffering and being persecuted, right? He ends up going to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, John Mark, we call him, where many were there gathered together and were praying. That's the Rhoda passage when she doesn't, she gets freaked out and leaves Peter at the door. But the idea of them praying together to navigate through the suffering and evil. Sometimes we have these apologetics discussions with non-Christians when they're suffering. I don't have any problem. And I do it often to pray with them, to be with them, to affirm that, yes, this is part of the problem of a fallen world. And I always want to value humility. And this just, I guess, articulates what we've already put together in our lecture here tonight. And that is theologically, Romans 11, they, and the they in this passage is Israel. You can look at it in the text, the Jewish people. They too have now been disobedient. You know, the first three chapters are all about everyone's sin, Jew and Gentile alike. In order that by the mercy shown to you, the Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all the disobedience. What is that? All the Jews and Gentiles, right? So that he might have mercy on all. This is not a universalist passage. Some people use it in that regard. The context is clear. We're talking about the distinction between Israel and the Gentiles. And in this passage, it says God has consigned them all. In his plan, they all, unfortunately, are engaged in rebellion against God, and God is having mercy on both the Jews and the Gentiles, all without distinction, not all without exception. Then the expression of praise, the doxology, we call it, doxa in Greek, the the praise to God. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways against the backdrop of the sin and all the world being under sin and everyone in every part of the world sinning and the cannibals eating each other and the, the people cutting people's heads off and the rapes in Riverside and all the other things of the evil in the world. The good news is that God is giving mercy and grace through the redemptive message of the gospel and he's bringing people to Christ from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we ought to stand back as he expresses his mercy through the gospel ministry of churches like ours and people like you to say against that dark backdrop of sin, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. We have theological humility and personal, individual humility as well. First Peter 5, 6, and 7, when you're suffering, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. In the midst of your suffering, which is the context of First Peter 5, I've already read First Peter 4, that's what the book is all about. He says, listen, just be humble. You don't know when this is going to stop. You got a problem? You're suffering evil, injustice, lawsuits, cancer, whatever it is. Humble yourself individually. That God can lift you up at the proper time. And it may be at the resurrection. It may be at the threshold of the next life. But cast your anxieties between here and there on him because he cares for you. He sent his son to prove that he cares for you. He's put a plan of redemption together to care. E, and this is our gospel, right? Point to the solution. The good news is, to summarize in a passage I've seemed to quote a lot this semester, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. I just love the completeness of this list. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city, he says to Daniel. And of course, the spillover of Genesis chapter 12 to all people, every family of the earth being blessed in Abraham. And the point is, of course, it is to Israel and to Jerusalem. I get that. But the point of what he's going to do is to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting 
righteousness. I just love that from the 6th century BC. Here you have a picture of God saying, I'm going to finish all of this. I got a plan. Bring Christ on the scene. We're going to cancel out the debt. We're going to accomplish redemption. And in the end, when it's all done, after the 70th week of Daniel, which is yet to come in my eschatology, we're going to bring an end to sin and bring in an everlasting righteousness. Point to the solution. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25, that's the point of Christ's coming. He's not offering himself repeatedly. Christ isn't. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood that's not his own, the bulls and goats, for then he would have to suffer. Christ would repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a great passage to remind us that the core and the crux of our gospel message is Christ dying on a cross to absorb the sin penalty, to atone for that sin, to put an end to transgression, to bring in an everlasting righteousness that will be accomplished after that 70th week of Daniel. That's the solution very specifically we point to is the cross. The next verse should remind us of everyone's urgency. Every non-Christian we talk to, it's appointed a man wants to die, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I want to have more people in my sphere of influence eagerly waiting for the second coming of Christ. And that's what apologetics is all about, is knocking down these excuses. And one of the excuses can be a legitimate intellectual barrier. And that is why would God create a world like this? And though that is hard for us theoretically to answer, why didn't God create another world? The world he created will end up serving to glorify him. And there's a solution to it. And everything that they are concerned about in terms of the pain and the injustice, Christ himself, the creator of all things, absorbed, participated in, and were provided through that suffering, a solution to that pain, which is what the gospel is all about. Let's pray. God, help us in our evangelism to be much more upfront about, as we said last time we were together, that you are sovereign over all things, even the evil in this world. You're certainly not the creator of those transgressions. You are not taking any pleasure in the rebellion of human beings, but you use those things in the end to bring glory to yourself, to let us appreciate something that's coming that is so perfect by comparison that allows us to deeply worship you for the grace and mercy that's provided in Christ. And unlike any other religious system here, we have the creator that everyone wants to complain about taking on and suffering immensely in all the pain that you say you want to absorb, not just in the temporal sphere, which of course we'll have to experience a lot of that, but to take away the penalty of our sin by saying if we trust in you, we'll have all of our sins forgiven, we'll be qualified fully to share in the inheritance of the saints and light, as Colossians says. So God, get us more vocal about that this week. Let us help people think through their complaints about you, that we might be able to have them won over, to reason with them from the scriptures about these things, to see more people's names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.